Let me invite you to take out your Bibles and to turn them open to Mark chapter 6. You know, as we step into our study of the scriptures, I know that there are many uh, variety of emotions and feelings and everything that we may be bringing into the space tonight has has been a tough week. It's been a tough week in our nation. It's been a tough week in our culture. Lots of tears have been shed. Lots of tears are still being shed because as two divine image bearers were killed, Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge and Philando Castile in Minnesota, and of course they were killed by two police officers, and, and their deaths have set our country on edge. As people are feeling angst and angry, they are fearful and frustrated, they are, there's a lot of confusion, and many, many people in this city and around the country and even beyond are clamoring for justice. Everyone wants justice. But it's a struggle in a world such as ours, this whole idea of justice, because people do not always agree on what justice looks like. You see, in a fallen world, our pursuit of justice oftentimes results in the tragic exchange of one injustice for another. That tends to be what happens any time we champion justice. We, on some level, just exchange one injustice for another. This was certainly the case a few days after the shooting in Dallas, Texas, when the protest was happening. A protest designed to champion justice, a protest designed to champion awareness for uh, the killings of these two young men and these two family men. And, and still, someone came in with their own idea of justice, and a, a guy began to pick off five more members, five more people. Five more divine image bearers who just happened to be hanging out on the other side of the aisle wearing police uniforms. So it's a strange day that we live in. It's a strange society that we are a part of. And it's events such as these that affirm what Jesus assessed in earlier in Mark chapter 6. If you remember in the passage we looked at last week, there was a moment where Jesus looked out upon the crowd and he, he described them as harassed, or not as harassed and helpless, but he described them as sheep without a shepherd. You see, ultimately, that's the situation we find ourselves in as we are living in a world where the kingdom of God is yet to fully consummate itself. Fallen humanity are like sheep without a shepherd. We are a leaderless people. We all clamor for justice, but we do not know exactly how to bring it about. And we do not know if we'd really see, recognize justice if we, if we saw it. We are like sheep without a shepherd. Human beings are divided and disjointed. Human beings are incapable, ultimately, of creating and sustaining a just society. But it's not due to a lack of trying, and it's not due to a lack of desire. There are many people in this city and around the country who are trying, working hard to bridge divisions. Many people who are working for reconciliation and healing. So so it's not due to a lack of effort and it's not due to a lack of desire. But it seems in a world such as ours that the headwinds of injustice just blow too strong against us. The headwinds blow too strong against the cause of justice where it rarely seems as though we make much progress. And so on many days, we find ourselves looking precisely like the disciples do here in Mark chapter 6. We are rowing like the disciples. 
We are rowing in the boat. We're only able to make headway painfully because the wind is against us. And as a result, our hearts grow weary. As a result, we grow tired. We grow frustrated. We grow fearful. We begin to uh, despair. And it's in moments like these when our hearts are struggling, when we just can't seem to keep going, and we're just wondering and worried about the state of the world we are a part of. And it's in these moments where I, 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 hope, you have a, I hope you have room in your understanding of God for his providence. Because I want you to know how in God's providence, as we're just working through the Gospel of Mark, we are stepping into a passage tonight that provides precisely what our hearts need in this moment. A passage that provides what our hearts need at such a time as this. This is, this is a passage where in the midst of so much chaos and calamity caused by the injustice in our world, it's in these moments when our hearts need to be seized and, and settled once again by the person of Jesus. And this is what our story tonight is designed to do. It's, it's provided for us in this moment, at this time, to present to us Jesus. Saying, hey, look at Jesus. See who he is. Let Jesus seize your heart. Let Jesus settle your heart. Let Jesus be the source of your confidence in the midst of so much confusion and frustration and calamity. It's a powerful picture of the person of Jesus as this passage provides what our heart most desperately needs in a time such as this. And so I want to just show us a couple of portraits of Jesus all drawn from this story. And it's a, it's a portrait of Jesus that our lives need. It's a, it's a portrait of Jesus that can do our hearts much good in this moment. Because as you journey through this story, you're going to see two aspects of Jesus' identity revealed. Just saying, hey, consider this about Jesus. Now, the first aspect of Jesus' identity that you're going to see in this text isn't, isn't obvious. Although it's very subtle in the passage, it is a significant feature in this story, and that is this. Jesus is the suffering servant. We need to see Jesus as the suffering servant and understand what his identity means for us and the lives that we lead in the here and now. The whole idea of Jesus being a suffering or the suffering servant. Now, as you read through this passage, as well as all of Mark chapter 6, there's a lot of Old Testament lurking in the backgrounds of this chapter. In fact, you and I cannot understand the events going down in this chapter apart from the Old Testament. There's a lot of it lurking in the background, and we're going we're gonna to look at a few uh, pieces this evening. We're going to get several of them into consideration, but we're going to start with Ezekiel chapter 34. Now, you don't have to turn there. The, the key passages will be shown up on the screen for you. But in Ezekiel chapter 34, you have this moment where the people of Israel's leaders have been letting them down. They are not championing righteousness. They are not championing justice. And as a result, God rebukes them. He sends the prophet Ezekiel to bring a harsh word. But, but God's word rarely comes in a unilaterally harsh way. Usually when he brings a rebuke, he also brings a promise. Usually when he brings a tough word, he usually brings a, a, a tender word of hope along with it. And this is certainly the case in Ezekiel 34. Now I want you to read a few of these passages for us and just put it before us so that we can have this in our mind as we're looking at Jesus as the suffering servant, considering who he is and 
Ezekiel 34, beginning of verse 4, this is what we read. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered, all o- they wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Drop down to verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, behold, this is God's promise. So he rebukes them, and then he says this. I myself will search for my sheep. I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Verse 15, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Verse 23, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. I hope you're hearing those words in light of last week's passage where Jesus stands and he feeds the multitude. He feeds the people Jesus identified as sheep without a shepherd. I hope you're seeing the connections. God saying, I will feed, or my shepherd will feed them and be their Yeah, (laughs) he will feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Verse 24, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, and I have spoken. Now, understand that those words in Ezekiel chapter 34 were written long after King David's reign. So when the prophet talks about David, he's not talking about actual David. He's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about the descendant of David. He's talking about the one the Gospels would identify as the son of David, the one you and I know to be Jesus. And he's saying there's coming a day when, when David, when the Messiah, when the son of David named Jesus will come and, and God will establish his righteous rule in the world through him. And you and I know as we've stepped into the gospel of Mark that this day dawned when Jesus entered Galilee and he began to proclaim the gospel of God. Mark chapter 1 verse 14, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The time has come for all that God promised to be fulfilled. I am the fulfillment of everything God said he would do to redeem his people and the world. The time is fulfilled. And then he says this, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the gospel. And he delivers that message, kickstarting his public ministry, saying the dawn that was and the the day that was anticipated in Ezekiel 34 has, has dawned. As Jesus has stepped into the world to do everything that was prophesied then. But the thing about Jesus is that he was gonna do things in such a way that caught his contemporaries off guard. People did not automatically conclude that he was the one sent from God to set the world right. And those who did come to an understanding that Jesus was the Messiah, they did not understand his mission. They misunderstood the justice and the righteousness he sought to establish. And so Jesus would go about his business. He would go about his ministry and and he would do it in a way that caught his contemporaries off balance. You see, it was common in the first century. It was a common view held by many of the Jewish people to think that God's kingdom would come in one fell swoop. 
that it would come in one ferocious act. The Messiah would come and establish God's kingdom in an instant. They did not expect a gradual unveiling of the kingdom of God. They did not expect the kingdom of God to take this, this form of a seed that would go into the ground and be broken up and then produce fruit gradually and progressively over time. Many of them assumed the Messiah would come with force, that he would be a military man. And what's interesting is the backdrop of Mark chapter 6 is rural Galilee. And there was a movement in that region at this time, a zealot movement, a group of Jewish nationalists who wanted the Messiah to come and to come in force. And so they're waiting to be brought together by the Messiah, by this military figure, and be led and He would lead them in revolt against the Roman occupation of Israel. And so many people kind of reduced God's kingdom to that dynamic. Many people thought that if righteousness and justice is going to prevail, this is what must happen. But what's striking about that, if that was Jesus' approach, you understand that Jesus would have only succeeded at exchanging one injustice for another. If that was Jesus' approach, he would not have established a righteous and a just kingdom in the world. This is why Jesus wanted nothing to do with that dynamic. This is why Jesus brought God's kingdom in a way that caught his contemporaries off guard. He wasn't interested in being a militant Messiah. He came as the suffering servant. So you take this story into consideration, understanding that the feeding of the 5,000 we looked at last week, it appears in all four Gospels. And we get a significant detail uh, given to us in John's account where immediately following this miracle where Jesus feeds all these people, you get an idea of what they expected. And it says in John chapter 6 verse 14, when the people saw the sign that they had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And so Jesus didn't want anything to do with that understanding of the kingdom of God. So he pushed back against it. And that also explains the urgency that kickstarts our story tonight in verse 45. This sense of urgency and immediacy when the crowd, it seems, is, is rallying to make Jesus king and saying, okay, you're going to lead us against the Romans, you're going to help us kick them out of our land. And it says, well, I need to get my disciples away from that perspective. And so immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and he made them go to the other side of the, of the sea. And then he dismissed the crowd. And so Jesus didn't want anything to do with that dynamic. He, he didn't want his disciples. He didn't want his disciples swept up in their misguided zeal for justice. He didn't want his disciples swept up in a movement that would simply exchange one form of injustice for another. So he said, I've got to get my disciples out of here. I need to protect the integrity of my kingdom. And to do that, he sends his disciples on ahead and then he dismisses the crowd. You understand that the kingdom of God in Mark chapter 6 is Jesus and his disciples. They represent God's kingdom in the world. That's the kingdom of God in seed form. That's the mustard seed that we talked about in Mark chapter 4. It is this group. It is this community. And so Jesus wants to protect the integrity of his kingdom. He wants to protect the trajectory of his kingdom. So he sends his disciples away in a rush. And then he dismisses the crowd. And then we're told, interestingly, in verse 6, that he then went up to the mountain to pray. 
And this is where we really begin to see Jesus as the suffering servant. You see, there are three moments in Mark's gospel where we are told that Jesus retreats from the crowd to pray. And each one of these moments shares some very significant things in common. The first occurrence is in Mark chapter 1. So you hold your spot in Mark chapter 6. Flip back to Mark chapter 1, and you're going to see the first instance where Jesus is said to pray. Notice what goes down. Right after Jesus heals many people, he's serving the people, he's healing diseases, he's casting out demons, he's showcasing the kingdom of God. Then in verse 35, listen to what happens. It says, in rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. And while he was praying, Simon comes to him and says, hey, the crowd is clamoring clamoring for you. The people want to see you. They want to talk with you. They, They want you to continue serving in the way that you've been serving. But after having this time of prayer, it's as though Jesus kind of recalibrates himself. He refocuses himself. He, he understands more of what his mission is. And so he comes out of that time of prayer in verse 38, and he says, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. He's saying there are more people who need to know about my kingdom, and so I can't stay here even though I'm very popular in this moment, even though the people want me in this moment. I can't be driven by a desire for popularity. I have a deeper mission, a deeper purpose, and so I must go on to the other towns. And so there's a crowd that wants Jesus. Jesus retreats to pray, and then he comes out resolved to do something else. Mark chapter 6, the passage we're looking at tonight. Very similar elements. The crowd crowd is clamoring for Jesus. They want him to establish God's kingdom in that moment, at that time. They want him to do it in a way that they expect. But Jesus doesn't do it. He retreats to pray. It's as though he kind of recalibrates, refocuses himself. There was one New Testament scholar who brings this very clearly for us. He says this. He says, following the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus reaffirms by prayer his calling to express his divine sonship as a servant rather than as a freedom fighter against Rome. And then you hold that spot and you turn to the right a little more to Mark chapter 14 and you find the most famous moment when Jesus prays. Mark chapter 14, you turn over there and you'll see these, these words. Mark chapter 14, beginning of verse 32. This is the moment when Jesus goes into into the Garden of Gethsemane, and you know what he's praying about. He's praying about what he must do. He's praying about his Father's will. He's praying about being the suffering servant. So he says in verse 32, And they, the disciples, went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I pray. Drop down to verse 35, and going a little farther, Jesus fell on the ground and prayed, He prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Referring to the wrath that he would endure on the cross, this cup of wrath. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And what these three occurrences, when Jesus is shown to pray in the gospel of Mark, have in common is that in each moment... Jesus is tempted to, he's tempted off course. In each one of these moments, people and circumstances are vying for Jesus to do something other than what his father intends for him to do. 
The first instance in Mark chapter 1, it's popularity. It's do what's popular. Stay with the people. Stay here. And Jesus says, no, I must go forward. Mark chapter 6, you might describe it as expediency. Jesus, do what's expedient. You have an army. You have 5,000 men ready to fight with you against the Romans. Do what's expedient. Let's go for this thing now. Let's establish God's kingdom now. And Jesus says, no, that's not what my kingdom's about. Mark chapter 14, do what's easy. Find another way. Don't go to the cross. Don't drink the cup of the Father's wrath. Do something else. And Jesus, says, and Jesus submits himself in that moment to what his Father intended him to do. You see, as Jesus prays all throughout the Gospel of Mark, he recalibrates and he recommits himself. He stays on course. He refuses to do what's popular, what's expedient, or what many might consider easier. He instead submits himself entirely to his Father's will. Saying, I've come to be the type of Messiah the world needs, not necessarily the type of Messiah the world may want or the type of Messiah that the world may expect. Now, Jesus certainly could have established his kingdom in northern Galilee in this moment. He certainly could have done that, but it wouldn't have been a kingdom that sinners could have entered into and enjoyed for all eternity. It wouldn't have been a just kingdom. It wouldn't have been a righteous kingdom. And so Jesus says, after praying in each moment, I've come to be a certain type of Messiah, this one who would be this suffering servant. This is how God's kingdom, his righteous and just kingdom, will be established in the world. You want more clarity on that? Mark chapter 8. This is where Jesus says it in no uncertain terms. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He's talking about his role as the suffering servant. Listen to what he says. It says, And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must necessity there, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He's saying, I must die and I must rise. This is my mission. This is my purpose. This is my kingdom. I am the suffering servant who's come to die and to rise. This is how he would establish righteousness and justice in the world. So you hear that and you you think about what that means for Jesus, but then if you are a disciple of Jesus, you need to think about what this means for you. As we live in a world where everyone clamors for justice, but not everyone can agree on what justice is. And we do not know exactly how to engage this thing called justice in the world. We don't know how to engage it very well. And, and oftentimes we end up exchanging one form of injustice for another. Even though our intentions may be good, even though our efforts may be strong, we can't establish and sustain a just society in the world. And so what do we do? Well, we consider Jesus as the suffering servant. And as those of us who are disciples of his, we must understand that his pattern, his paradigm of death and resurrection of suffering service is our pattern as well so that we follow the suffering servant in a sense as suffering servants now certainly we don't do that in any type of salvific sense but we do do it in a kingdom advancing sense this is why in mark chapter 8 you keep reading in that passage right after jesus affirms the necessity of him dying and rising listen to what he says about his followers Verse 34, Jesus then called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone would come after me, if anyone's going to follow me, if anyone's going to identify with me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
So there's the pattern. There's the paradigm. We follow the suffering servant as suffering servants. And this has huge implications for how we engage justice in the world. Huge implications. I want to put just five before you, just drawn from these passages that we've read real quick. I'm not going to expound too much on them, but I want to put them before you this morning because as a, as a pastor in this church, it is my responsibility to help us, help us see what's expected of us, help us see what it looks like for us to be disciples who want justice, who want righteousness, who How do we get some clarity in the midst of so much confusion? How do we look at Jesus and let him frame our understanding of what it means to engage justice and what it means to champion uh, righteousness in the world? And so you think about Jesus' role as the suffering servant. You think about all those moments where Jesus is praying and he's recalibrating. You you can draw several implications. Again, I'm just going to put five before you to consider. I'll try not to expound too much on them for the sake of time. But the first one is this. The first implication for our lives is that we must be committed to doing what's right, recognizing that doing what's right is more important than doing what's easy. Doing what's right is more important than doing what's easy. When I was in the sixth grade, I, or I'm sorry, when I grew up in elementary school, my childhood was spent in a small rural town in South Louisiana, not too far from where the shootings and things went down in Baton Rouge. And, and my house was pushed right up against the railroad tracks in my town. And the railroad tracks literally divided. I didn't realize this as an elementary school kid, but the tracks ran through the town, dividing the black neighborhood from the white neighborhood. But as a kid, I didn't know any difference, and so I crossed those tracks all the time. My friends were on the other side of the tracks. I'd go play basketball and baseball. I'd run around with them, guys like Corey Carter and, and folks that I would just grew up with and just ran with and hung with, and I loved these guys. And then after fifth grade, my family moved to a different, a bigger area in Louisiana, a bigger town, and... And when we did, my parents enrolled me in a private school. And when I went to the private school, I was really shocked because it was as white as an egg carton. I mean, it was 100%. I mean, just, just 100% white. And I was confused. And one day I was sitting outside waiting for my mom to come pick me up. And so I started asking questions. I said, well, where, 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 where are the black kids? And uh, several of the students just kind of looked at me kind of strange. said, we, we don't have any here. I said, well, why not? He said, well, uh, at that time they didn't really accept black kids' applications into the school. And when I heard that, I, again, I was sixth grade. I didn't understand the full, all the complexities of all the things that were going on, but I knew it just wasn't right. Something checked my gut, and I said, well, that's, are you, what? And the guy said something smart in that moment, and I went to, we about, we, we started to wrestle and fight, and then my mom drove up, and she broke it up, and she got me in the car, and she took me home. But the whole time riding home, I was fuming. I was like, what is wrong with that school? Why, what, you know, Corey couldn't come here if he wanted to come here, this, that, and the other. And my mom said, uh, and, and so I just began to ask my mom, why, why, why? And that's the first time I came face to face with this whole complex, the whole injustice of racism in the world that is. I got home. I began talking to my mom. I said, mom, I can't go back to that school. I need to go somewhere else. My mom said, well, Andrew, that's, that, that school is going to give you the best education. I said, Mom, I don't care. That's not what I, I, I want to go somewhere else. I, I can't go back to that school. And, and fortunately, my mom pulled me out and sent me to another school in the town. And yeah, it was a much rougher place. It was a tougher school. It was a tougher environment. The education wasn't as strong that was available there. But there was something in me in that moment at sixth grade. And I believe it's, it was God's grace at work in me to show me the injustice of that situation 
and by God's grace, helped me do what is right and not just what is easy, not just me, but my family as well. And so we shift gears and we moved on. Now, there, there are moments in our journey with Jesus in the world that is where we're going to be forced to choose between doing what's right and doing what's easy, between doing what's right and doing what might be best for us personally or professionally. And in those moments, disciple, are you prepared to do what is right over what's easy? But not only do we see that framing our understanding of, our, of engaging justice in the world, we must recognize in Jesus, the suffering servant, that, that we labor for long-term victories and not short-term rewards. We labor for long-term victories, not short-term rewards. And this affects how we engage variety of issues in this city. Engaging, serving, laboring for long-term victories, not short-term rewards. In other words, it is not just to apply Band-Aids to scratches. It is not just to just do what, is, what provides a short-term reward so that we might feel good about ourselves and our efforts to be about justice in the city. We have to commit ourselves for a long obedience in the same direction, engaging and laboring for long-term victories, not short-term rewards. This means we must think well about what justice looks like in this city. We must think well about how best to love people and to set them up for success in the world that is. Next week, we're going to have an opportunity to learn from a group in the city who's doing just that, a, a representative from the Give Safe community, a, a team that's developing an app to help equip us to care for uh, those who are homeless and hurting in the neighborhood, and one of their representatives is going to come share. And this, the development of this app and the rolling it out has been a long process, a slow process, but I think in their example, we're going to see a picture of moving for long-term rewards and not just long-term victories and not short-term rewards, because I believe this app can set us up to serve others well. But not only do we see that in Jesus' dynamic, we, we want to refuse to do things the popular way if it is not God's way. We want to refuse to do things the popular way if it's not God's way. I love this about Jesus. He never licked his finger, stuck it in the air, and found out where the wind was blowing and then moved in that direction. He never did that. In many ways, we even see it illustrated in the story. He goes against the grain. He goes against the wind. He's rarely cooperating with the zeitgeist or the spirit of the age that he lived in. And if you and I are going to be his disciples, championing justice as it's defined by the scriptures, then, then we then we are going to be the types of people who refuse to do things the popular way if it's not God's way. We're not just going to follow the zeitgeist or the spirit of the age we live in. We're not going to be enslaved prisoners of the moment. We're going to look to the scriptures to show us what justice looks like, to show us how life should be lived, and we're going to champion the scriptures. We're going to champion the gospel. But not only do you see that in Jesus, you see that Oftentimes in his ministry, the more social pressure he felt, the more prayer he prayed. The more social pressure arose, the more prayer he engaged in. Now, now I know we live in a society where prayer is often mocked, especially when it comes to the conversation of doing what's just. You post on Facebook or Twitter right now something about praying for the situation in Dallas or praying for the families in Louisiana or or Minnesota, you, you talk about praying online, chances are you're going to get some pushback saying, well, stop praying. Why don't you stop praying and start doing something? And prayers often mock today, saying you, you're not really about justice if you're going to spend your time praying. You actually need to do something. You understand that's exactly counter to what Jesus modeled for us in the Gospels? When the social pressure increased upon him, he prayed more. 
And as his disciples, as things happen in society, it should drive us to more prayer, not less. Now, that doesn't mean we have to broadcast the fact that we're praying for everything, but it certainly means that we don't stop praying. But we recognize, just as Jesus recognized, that as we pray, we move our feet. As we pray, we move our feet, but we certainly don't move our feet without praying. We certainly don't engage in justice without communing with our Father to help us discern what is good and right and acceptable in His sight for every situation we find ourselves in. The issue of justice is too complicated in our world for us to try to go about it in our own wisdom. We have to tune in to what Christ is telling us. We have to tune in to his character. We have to tune in. And how do you do that? You pray. You pray so that you're not knocked off course when it comes to championing justice and carrying out the kingdom of God. But then lastly, and perhaps the most difficult aspect of of following the suffering servant Perhaps the most difficult implication for all of us as disciples of Jesus is that there must be a willingness to suffer more so that others will suffer less. A willingness to suffer more so that others will suffer less. This is the pattern Jesus models for us. And as his heart seizes our heart, there is a willingness to suffer more so that other people suffer less. There's a willingness within us to make sacrifices for other people's benefit so that we're willing to give of our money, we're willing to give of our time, we're willing to give of our resources to care for people who are hurting. We're willing to step into conversations that might make us uncomfortable. We're willing to recognize systemic issues that are problematic and we're not going to shy away from them or ignore them. We're going to face them square on and we're going to be willing to suffer more so that others can suffer less. And I know for guys like me, this looks like us acknowledging that there really is a problem that exists in our society. It really is a, a racial divide that exists in our community and in our country. And so we're willing to suffer more so that others can suffer less. We're willing to, to confess what's wrong about us. A willingness to suffer more so that others can suffer less is one of the key ways in which we pursue justice as we serve the suffering servant with the lives that we lead. But not only do we see that in this text, if we, if we just focused on Jesus being the suffering servant, uh, it might be kind of a downer for us, right? We might not have much hope. We might not have much confidence. But understand that what you see in this story isn't just Jesus as the suffering servant, seeing that subtly, more ferociously and more obviously, more clearly from this story, is that Jesus is not only the suffering servant, he is the sovereign God. And when you and I begin to see Jesus as the sovereign God, all of a sudden we find the resources needed to do whatever's necessary to champion justice in the world that is. We find ourselves with the resources needed to being about the things that Jesus was about. He's not only the suffering servant, he is the sovereign God. And this is much clearer in the passage. You jump down to verse verse 45. I'm sorry, verse 48. It says, and when evening, um, verse 47. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they, the disciples, were making headway painfully. They weren't making much progress. The storm was too rough and for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, it's about somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus came to them. But he came to them how? He came to them walking on the sea. Walking on the sea. It says it again down in verse 49. When they saw Jesus walking on the sea. 
So you got to kind of get that picture in mind. The disciples are struggling. They're rowing. They're not making much progress. And Jesus is strolling. They're struggling. He's strolling. They're frustrated. He's fine. And what you begin to see a picture in that moment is Jesus as the sovereign God who transcends the chaos of that moment. Waters in the Bible represent chaos, represent disorder, represent everything that makes life miserable in a fallen world. Water, seas, lakes usually represent that type of dynamic. And so you consider that when you look at Jesus strolling on top of the sea. You begin to see the sovereign God who transcends the chaos and the disorder of this world. And when you recognize that, your heart is shored up because you realize, look, yeah, the world's messed up. Yeah, we've got a long way to go. Yeah, it doesn't seem like we're making much progress. But Jesus transcends. He is the sovereign God who transcends the chaos and the disorder of the world. There's one moment in Job chapter 9, verse 8, where God is described as trampling on the seas, as the one who can walk over the chaos of the world. This is what Jesus is doing because he is that God. And so we consider that and we recognize that it is, the tra- it is his transcendence that serves our humility. It is his transcendence that gives us humility when we recognize, man, we're not making much progress on our own. And Jesus is fine. We're struggling. He's strolling. And so in humility, we look to Jesus In humility, we profess, we're not very good at this thing called life. We don't handle the chaos and the disorder of the world that is very well. So we look to Jesus, the transcendent one, and his transcendence is our humility. So we recognize, you're better than we are. You're stronger than we are. You're more capable than we are. And so as disciples of Jesus, we can't talk about justice, we can't talk about righteousness without looking to Jesus the transcendent one. So in humility, that's where we go. But then notice what he says in verse 48. It says that he's walking on the sea, and then there's this strange phrase at the end of verse 48. It says that Jesus then meant to pass by them. That's a strange phrase. Jesus meant to pass by them in this moment. And you're wondering, why would Jesus want to walk past his struggling disciples? Is he planning on just kind of looping back around and sneaking up on them and saying, ha, gotcha. Is he trying to accomplish some time a Pokemon Go task? Like maybe he sees a little Pokemon on the water and he's going to seize him and to catch him. Maybe he's trying to do something else. It's a strange phrase to say Jesus wanted to pass them by. And again, this is where we must understand that the Old Testament is lurking behind everything we're reading in Mark chapter 6. And so there's a couple of moments in the Old Testament where God is described as passing people by. Exodus chapter 34, for example. Show you a couple of examples. I'll just give you one. Exodus chapter 33, when the Lord is engaging his Moses, and there's a moment where Moses wants to, he's, he's communing with God, he wants to see the glory of God, and this is the exchange in Exodus chapter 33. Beginning in verse 18, Moses says, please show me your glory. Then in verse 20, God says, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. It wouldn't be just to show Moses his face in that moment because Moses would die. Then in verse 21, and the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, there's the phrase, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not 
shall not be seen. And then later in chapter 34, all of that goes down. It says in verse 6, the Lord passed before Moses, passed before him, and this is what he proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. So in that moment, God passes by. Moses says, I want to see your glory. And he says, well, my glory you will see, but you're only going to catch a glimpse of it because I'm going to pass you by. I'm going to show you it. And what's interesting is when that happens, Moses hears a description of God's character. And so Moses sees the glory of God by catching wind of what God is like. And in the description, there's a couple, there's a bunch of things in there, but for the sake of time, there were two strange seeming contradictory statements. On one hand, God says, I'm going to forgive sins. But on the very, in the very next breath, Moses hears the Lord say, but I'm not going to clear the guilty. And so you're wondering, well, what is it? Are you going to forgive sins or are you going to condemn sinners? And you find the glory of God in this confusion. You find the glory of God in that tension. And then you recognize that in that moment, Moses only caught a glimpse of God's glory through that description. But what Moses caught a glimpse of, you and I see more fully when we turn our attention to Jesus. And we see him in Mark chapter 6 about passing by the disciples in a very similar way, showing them that he is the sovereign God, showing them that he is the God that Moses caught a glimpse of in that moment. But what they're going to discover about Jesus is far richer than what Moses discovered then. What they're going to see in Jesus is the tension between God's justice and God's grace being absolved. Because on one hand, Jesus is going to pass by the disciples. He's going to go to the cross and what's going to happen there? On one hand, God is going to punish sin. In no way is God going to clear the guilty. Well, if he's not going to clear them, then that means he must condemn them. Well, what happens on the cross? God condemns the guilty by crucifying his son. And that's where justice is rendered, on the cross. But then we also know that on the cross, there is forgiveness for our sins. There is forgiveness for our iniquities. So at the cross, we find grace and justice merging together, grace and justice kissing on the cross so that God can establish a truly just and righteous kingdom, a place where sinners can enter into and enjoy for all eternity. And so what we begin to see is that the glory of God is our salvation. His glory, his passing by, all that God is for us in Jesus is our salvation. It is where we find forgiveness. It is where God upholds his justice while extending grace. It's all seen in Jesus. His glory is our salvation. This is what's echoed in that phrase of him passing by the disciples. But then you keep reading and you see more about Jesus being the the sovereign God. It says in verse 50, it says... For they, were, they all saw Jesus and they were terrified, but immediately Jesus then turned his attention to them and he spoke. Very similar to what happened to Moses. God's passing by and he begins to speak. Here, Jesus is passing by and he begins to speak. And this is what he says. He says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. In verse, 30, verse 51, and he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. 
You get this moment where, yes, Jesus is the sovereign God. His transcendence is our humility. His glory is our salvation. His presence is our peace. He steps into the boat and everything goes silent. The storm ceases. You get a connection between the presence of Jesus and the peace the disciples would have. And you extend that on to you and I. And you consider as we live in a tumultuous climate, is it possible to be at peace in this kind of world? Well, it is possible to be at peace in this kind of world if that peace is coming to us from the presence of Christ within us. And this is the type of peace that transcends all understanding. It is a transcendent peace. It is a type of peace that can stroll through the storm. So his presence is our peace. You hear this in the, sin, in the simple words, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. But then there's one more dynamic. You look back at that phrase. He says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And you circle that phrase, it is I. Because when Jesus says, it is I, understand that he is clearly revealing himself as the sovereign God. That phrase, it is I, is the construction ego and me, which means I am. And he's using the same, he's revealing the same thing about himself here as he does all throughout the Gospel of John. Where Jesus reveals himself to be the same God Moses met in the book of Exodus. You consider that moment where Moses is strolling through the wilderness and all of a sudden he comes across a bush that is on fire but it's not consuming and he hears a voice cry out to him and, and he comes near to this bush and he meets God. And you know in that moment the people of Israel are oppressed in Egypt. And so the I am shows up because the I am is about to go to work through the prophet Moses to bring liberation, to bring freedom, to deliver them out of Egypt and into the promised land. And then you consider how when Moses asks the Lord, what is your name? What should I call you? When people tell me you sent me, what do I say? And he says, well, my name is Is, right? He says, tell them that I am sent you. I am who I am. And when Jesus steps onto the scene in Galilee and he's going about his days time and time and time again, he uses that same name in reference to himself saying, I am, I am. And we begin to see a picture of how Jesus is the God of the Exodus. And just as God saw Israel suffering oppression in Egypt and acted on their behalf to bring them out and to deliver them from that, all serving as a hint and a foreshadow of what he would do in Jesus when the I am would come once again and he would see the world in all of its chaos and all of its disorder. He would see a world oppressed, not simply by one nation, but a world oppressed by the ultimate oppressors of sin, sickness, Satan, and death. And what does the I am do? He steps into the world. He journeys through life, living a perfect life of obedience, liberating people from sin, sickness, and death, ultimately to go to the cross and do what? to die on the cross and to rise from the grave ultimately to bring us freedom from all of our oppressors, to give us hope in the midst of chaos. Because ultimately, when it comes to Jesus, his salvation is our freedom. As Jesus liberates us from all of our oppressors, stepping over sin, stepping over sickness, stepping over Satan, stepping over death so that we might live. His salvation is our freedom. And this is food for the soul when you step into an environment where everything seems disorderly, 
Everything seems unjust. Everything seems like chaos. You, you feast your soul on the person of Jesus, the suffering servant, the sovereign God who lived, died, rose again, and promises to return ultimately to liberate us from all that assails us now. And so what we do in this moment is we turn our attention to the table and we consider Jesus the suffering servant, the sovereign God, and we approach the table tonight and we, we feast on his body represented in the bread. And we dip that bread into the cup and we feast upon his blood, which is the cup representing how he died to forgive us of all of our sins. And as we come to feast in this way, looking back to what Jesus accomplished when he did all the things that he did in the gospel, we don't just look backwards, we then pivot forwards and we look forward to the day when Jesus comes once again. And he returns into this world and he ushers a new heaven and a new earth. He executes justice and righteousness in the fullest and the most, in the most final sense. And so as we come to the table to worship him in these ways, we want our soul to feast on those realities. We want our souls to find refuge as Moses found refuge in the cleft of the rock, we want to find refuge even now in this reality. And so let me invite you to the table to come at your own pace and to consider the person of Jesus, the suffering servant, sovereign God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace now as we worship you over these next couple of moments? As we come to the table, would your Holy Spirit administer your gospel to our lives to encourage us, to shore us up, to bring us peace, to bring us hope, to remind us of all that Jesus did for us and to encourage us with all that awaits for us in the future? And I pray as you shore up our faith in this moment, I pray that you would help us live to the hilt until that day comes. Help us to be about all the things that your son was about. Give us grace to be disciples in a church that champion justice and righteousness in Seattle and beyond. Help us to find our role in what you're doing in the world as we live towards the return of Christ. God, we ask and we pray all of these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.